0: Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls and ready to roll on another successful week for Australia's emerging talent. Minwoo Lee who wins a three-man playoff for his second European Tour title at the Scottish Open earlier this week. Terrific young player, equally nice young bloke, good to see him having success. Uh, now Minwoo has what one might describe as a very sexy golf game, which is kind of fitting because today's topic is anything but Water might be the most precious precious resource on the planet and golf, not surprisingly, is coming under increasing scrutiny for the way we use the stuff. At the US Open recently, I wrote a column critical of the way Tory Pines was presented and in particular a video that emerged early in the week of sprinklers pouring water, not on the playing surfaces, but on the rough lining the 18th hole. Today's guest took exception to that column, so today we're going to thrash it out when Pat Jones of Flagstaff Golf joins us to talk water and golf. That free-for-all coming up in a minute, but before we meet Pat, hello again to my co-host Adrian Logue. Still in the lockdown here in Sydney, Logue, but I think you can still play golf.
1: If so, have you been doing that? I haven't. Um, I went a whole weekend without golf last weekend. We've got this 10-kilometre Restriction as well, and the golf club where I play is beyond ten kilometers from where I live. So, as the crow I can't finds. go there, have you
0: done the measurement? As the crow, have you done every measurement have. possible? If you'd run the algorithms, there's a website
1: called Two Kilometers From Me, something, <laughs> which you can, and then you can change the number of kilometers from you. The stuff you uh, know just intrigues very me. Very yeah. handy little website, but <laughs> uh, lockdown. Yeah, that, that's no golf for me. So, um, I, I'm, you know, there are some courses within 10 kilometres. So yes, I, I was involved in a text chat and I know you're going to play some golf in the not-too-distant yes.
0: future, so best of luck with that. Let's get on to the real business of today's show. As I mentioned in the intro, our guest today is Pat Jones, whose bio reads, and I've edited selectively here, it reads thus, a business media exec- executive for most of his adult life, profitably steering the sales and editorial operations of Golf Course Industry, Lawn and Landscape, Golfdom and GCM magazines over the years. Jones got his start in the business running Lobbying, public relations and fundraising for the golf course superintendents associated of america but here's the bit i'm most interested in he's best known for communicating candidly about golf business and life as a writer speaker and teacher pat jones welcome looking forward to some candid conversation with you today
2: I got nothing but candid, right? That's that's all I got and all I ever had. But you know, listening to that introduction, it really sounds like I just can't hold a job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> does a does bit, which would be unfair and untrue. You're doing uh, you're doing pretty well, all things considered. The point about candid, and we try to be that here. That doesn't necessarily mean in-your-face and aggressive, does it, Pat? There's no point sugarcoating stuff and talking around issues, particularly big issues. Our audience is quite small in the golf podcast world. It's only those who are really interested in the stuff that we talk about. Water being one of them candid we, we don't we have like enough off, don't you, we.
2: we like to call you nerds
0: nerds or niche maybe i think we're niche these days Perhaps. i don't think we're it's i a, think we're what badge we, we like?
1: wear with pride
0: yeah. pat we're not woke <laughs> Me we? too. yeah <laughs> we're not woke so it's important though isn't it pat Our communicate we see it in the broader media the way that public discourse unfolds is really important to how things move forward or not
2: yeah it, um Take a step back. So, so all I've done for 35 years is write about and research and talk to golf course superintendents and architects and folks in the construction business, mostly in the United States. And and, uh, and so all, all I've ever tried to do is take the temperature of things and, and to be, be able to talk, talk candidly about what's going on in the industry. And, and so one thing I can tell you is the number one limiting factor for the future of golf is water okay it, it, it is you're absolutely spot on in your your emotional response to seeing water get wasted on a golf course because we can't afford to do that mm-hmm. and, and what we need to do is, is be leaders in the in the wise use of water and not get caught up in the the emotions and the politics of the day uh, because it can happen just like that so uh, you, you know that the the, the the issues facing the, the golf industry in the, in the United States right now. And I think globally mm-hmm. are fundamentally, it, are can we use resources wisely enough to continue to deserve them? You Pretty know? much. And that yeah. change, that changes. So, yeah. so suppose you're a, suppose you're a little community, suppose you're, you're a, a little community in the United States and you, and you want to decide how much are we going to charge for our water? Right. We're going to have a, we're going to have community water here. And, and so for homeowners with babies and, and you know, little, and, and little postage sample lawns, we're going to charge you a dollar a gallon. i us just make this up. Mm-hmm. But those golf courses, they're big and they're they're an easy target and they're unwise users of water. And maybe we don't agree with uh, the, the, their politics or their positioning or what we think the perception of them is. So we're going to charge them ten dollars a gallon. And, and, and that's what's going to happen. So if we're not using it wisely, we're going to get charged a boatload of money for it. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that will happen to some extent every, uh, all over the, the, the globe.
0: Hmm. You've touched on a whole bunch of key points, which we discuss often here. Not the least of them being this, this image problem that golf has. This raised its head again during the week. Another tweet from somebody saying, look at all these golf courses. They should all be shut down, all these public golf courses, turned into parks so that they can be used by the many and not the few. How do we combat that? This plugs into that water conversation because inevitably in the comments thread, in the replies to that, it only takes two or three replies before said person says, yeah, they waste all this water. They pour chemicals on everything. We're better at that than we used to be, Pat. What's wrong with our messaging? Why isn't it getting out?
2: Well, we don't do enough of it. Um, yeah, this is this is really the this is the, another big issue. Is how do we tell our story? Mm. And, and you know, I uh, for years I've kind of always said there's five percent of us who think golf is the greatest thing for ever, you know ever for the environment and for communities, blah blah blah. And there's five percent of people who hate golf and would like to see every golf course plowed up and have potatoes planted. And then there's ninety percent of the people in the middle that don't know. You know, they just don't know. They, they maybe don't play very very much or ever. Uh, they just don't give it any thought. But they don't see much value in a golf course. Driving by the shuttered gates of a private club, they may not see much value. The classic thing is seeing a sprinkler running in the rain. Yeah. You know, oh, those people down there, they don't know what they're doing. So, yeah, it, it continues to be a big problem. So how do we tell that story? Well, we had a great story, honestly, at least in our part of the world with, with COVID, and it sounds terrible, but but for whatever reason, COVID became uh, a, a, a something that pushed people back towards golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, you here. know, there was a lack of alternatives and everything else. The weather was nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we've seen what I would like to call the COVID bubble. I hate the word boom because I'm old and I lived through the last. <laughs> golf <boom. laughs>
0: Yeah, that's right. It,
2: it didn't. It didn't end well.
0: They're fleeting, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah.
2: That yeah, wasn't good. So so you know, it's it's a. It's a thing that we've got to, 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 to use this platform right now to tell people, look, golf courses are wonderful community assets. Not two-thirds, of, excuse me, three-quarters of them in the United States are public, right? So we have 15,000 golf courses in the United States and about 3,500 to 4,000 are private clubs, the, the ones you can't go to to play if you're not a member. And the rest of them though, a lot of them are community courses. They, they're small budget facilities. Uh, they do great things for communities to raise money and, and they're, they're a, a place for exercise and physical fitness. So we've got to tell that story and we've got to tell a story about wildlife and about uh, how golf courses tend to cool communities, uh, communities with a lot of green space tend to have cooler air over the top of them. So Bottom line is all of us in the industry need to know these little stories, these little facts about the environmental benefits of golf and be able to tell that story. Um, it, it, and it comes down to turf nerdy stuff, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that golf courses produce oxygen and golf courses clean the environment and they're a great places for, for wildlife. So, so support your local turf nerd when they're telling the story, too.
0: I feel like, we'll come back to that, but I feel like that's changing within golf, which has been fantastic. It's one thing social media has done really well for the architecture nerds and for the turf nerds. It's created a community that didn't exist previously. We were dotted all over the place before. Now we've found this central location. I think that's been for the good of the game in both of those areas, both in turf and in architecture. We'll come back to some of that other stuff. There's big messaging and little messaging, and you've touched on a bunch of really interesting stuff about getting messages out, but let's come back. Let's not skirt the issue anymore, Pat. The column I wrote, about Tory Pines. One of the caddies on the practice day right. walked down the 18th hole and took video, beautiful sunny day, of sprinklers pointed away from the fairway <laughs> pouring water on the rough. Now, I think we will both agree that the optics of that is, is terrible, particularly for the non-golf world, and, I, and that was right. probably the broader point I was trying to make. Uh, what you pointed out to me was that the water's actually recycled on site there at Tory Pines. Talk a little bit about that, the role of recycled water what I got wrong there, and what I maybe got right uh, in that column, it's important okay. to acknowledge what I got right, Pat. That's very important. I, um, I
2: was guessing that's where you were going. Yeah, but with, um, you did. You, got, you got right the fact that we should not be perceived as wasting water. That that we have a, uh, a a commitment to that. You know, there's some other there's some other optical optic issues too with chemicals. And, and some of that stuff, too, that, that we could talk about as well. But for now, let's just talk about water. So, yeah, absolutely. We don't want that, that perception out there anymore. But that said, most people don't understand that Torrey Pines is one of a couple thousand golf courses in the United States that is irrigated with effluent wastewater or partially treated wastewater, brown water, whatever you want to call it. And they pay for that privilege in many cases. It's very, golf courses bear the 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 cost. Of piping that water in and having it uh, cleaned and some desalinated uh, it has a lot of c- bicarbonates and stuff and it's very salty. So it's crappy water and, and they have to deal with the consequences of that, but it's the only water they can have because those communities have decided we, we want to make sure we have enough clean water for other purposes. So it, now is every golf course in the United States like that? No, no. right. Uh, there, there, there's a percentage of golf courses that have their own wells, Right? They're using their essentially their own water. There's many of them that capture rainwater in big reservoirs and things like that. That's the same worldwide. Um, but but what, what I think you did see, and I sent you a little bit of information in advance, is that the golf industry has been taking this seriously for a while. And, and, and I think this is another global thing of reducing the amount of water we use. The primary way it's been done is to remove the amount of turf that we're irrigating, okay? Uh, absent some really great science, which we all hope is coming, which will produce uh, turf grass varieties that need even less water. The best way to do it is to reduce the amount of turf grass we're growing. Um, in some cases, cities like Las Vegas, and I believe even down in Phoenix and other places in the desert Southwest, they have paid communities and golf courses and lawns lawn uh, homeowners to remove turf, actually paid them per, per acre of turf. They remove. So, this has been a serious conversation for some time because, like, you know, we started out talking about it. This is the most important b- I- mm. issue facing golf uh, the cost what, of water, the, oh, the availability world, what of water.
0: Well, water's not just yeah. good for golf courses. <laughs> it's not quite quite of all needed. We're, we're going to be arguing with a whole bunch of other people, non golfers and other golfers and other sports alike, sporting fields right. and parks, all of those places that use water. So, yep. this
2: yeah. Yeah. And uh, it like just cool. has to be, but, but it has to be a, a a legitimate conversation about what value uh, golf brings to the United States. You know, here it becomes an economic argument. So we all participate annually in something called national golf day here. And I think there's, there's versions of it everywhere. Uh, And what it is, is a thinly disguised uh, reason to go to the Capitol and lobby on behalf of the golf industry and to tell our story. And, and and so a lot of times we're going in there and, and you can talk about, Hey, golf courses contribute to the environment, blah, blah, blah. But what they want to know is jobs right golf course the united states employ 2 million people that gets their attention right so you can make that economic argument as well and that helps people to understand too that 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 in the u.s the vast majority of these are small businesses (laughs) you know yeah there's some management companies and some bigger corporate entities but for the most part these are small businesses being operated by people just like you and me it's
0: not what's on tv though pat Augusta National's on TV. Tory Pines is on TV. Back to the recycled water for a moment, just because yeah, the water's yeah, no, recycled. No dodging
1: so- with this fictitious golf day you're talking about.
2: <laughs> oh, so, 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 yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to that, but, but it all comes back to telling the story. Because it is important that they understand that that, that that this is more than just a few clubs, right? Mm-hmm. So they understand that this is there's 15,000 businesses in the United States employing all these people, and that's a good place that'll get their attention. and then you can tell them about the recycled water.
0: Yeah. is pouring re- there's probably two elements to this question. We have a position that's pretty much anti the deep, rough, narrow fairway, brand of golf which we often see at the USA so we went away from it, it for a bit we said to become
1: a manicured turf grass manicured <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> grass that's, that's my main it's a bugbear so cuz he cuz roughy rough, if- be rough. If you have it like winged foot last year, as Logue points out, where you go and fluff it up with the rakes, you've only got to drive one cart through it and the whole thing's ruined anyway. So it's just – look at him. He's horrified just thinking about it again. <laughs> <real> is, <laughs> even recycled water is pouring it on golf courses, the best use of it. And then the next question being, and I think the USGA have made a bit of a rod for their own back. I saw George Waters, who's been on the show. He's a fabulous guy. We love George the work sure. that he does, writing about – why you don't particularly want rough. In fact, the USGA published an article, why you you don't want US Open rough on your golf course. And yet every year, this is what we dish up to the non-golf public as what golf looks like. We're doing that to cater to the golf market and we're damaging the brand further (laughs) outside of golf unnecessarily, I would say. So the two-part question is, is pouring recycled water on golf courses the best use of water necessarily? And certainly is pouring it on the rough for the preparation of golf courses to achieve some internal golf goal the best use of that water? Because we'll be asked these questions by non-golf at some point.
2: Yeah, no, I get it. And so a couple of questions there. Number one is using recycled water on rough good. And I'll make a case that it is because in some cases, and I don't know about Tory, this deal that they have to buy this water requires them to use more than they need they are literally spray fields for these brown waters, right? So that's a little, Mm, I I don't know that that's true, but that happens some places. And I know that golf courses where they literally have this, this acreage set aside just to spray this stuff. But because guess what happens when it goes through the turf grass, it actually filters some of the pollutants out of that water. It comes off the golf course cleaner than it went on. So to your point, that's kind of a win. Now, as, as far as, as uh, irrigating rough, agronomically, healthy grass is better than dead grass. <laughs> so, so you we, we, you can't create those environmental benefits and those jobs and those community assets without feeding and watering the product. So, uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I listen. If you if you like golf courses that are scrapped up burn out, and they've got no rough and they're tight and they're, they're dry and firm and fast. I'm with you. I think that's great. But I look at golf courses the same way I look at, at art, right? I go, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. And the Cleveland museum of art is one of the greatest art museums in the world. We're extremely lucky. It's free. Just go down there anytime you want to you see Claude Monet and, and Renoir and, and Van Gogh. It, it, and everybody that goes there likes something different, Right? Everybody you through different, and that's the way I feel about golf courses.
0: I do too, but I just feel like we're right and people who think the other thing are wrong, which is a totally <laughs> yeah. different
1: discussion. Yeah, just that's
2: good. I have, one one thing you
1: touched on there, Pat, was um that, you know, that you know, healthy turf grass is better than not healthy turf grass. Um I mean, good. I think with the, the case of Tory Pines, I a part of the visuals that I found compelling about Tory Pines was just looking away from the golf course down in the canyons there, there seemed to be some fantastic indigenous scrub. And wouldn't it be even better for the golf if that stuff was brought up onto the course? And yeah. instead of having turf grass in the rough that requires the water and chemicals and all sorts of maintenance, we had some of that beautiful scrubby indigenous ground cover, um, you know some sort of they had all these coastal varieties there. bring that up onto the golf course. It would have looked better. And I think it would have been better golf.
2: Listen, this is an argument that's been going on for years with native grasses. Um, you know, how do you, how much do you bring them onto the course? Um, how how close do you get? What's native? What's low maintenance mean? You you hear that a lot. That native grasses are low maintenance, or some of these things would have less maintenance. When in fact, it turns out they actually have a lot of costs. Native grasses have not turned out to be low maintenance. And the other issue then you have there is a business issue because people are looking for golf balls all day long. And, and you've got a, a slowdown of play. Uh, so, so some of those some of those things that seem like, yeah, this is the right thing to do from a design standpoint or from, from maybe from a, a, a macro environmental standpoint, just don't work on a golf course, you know? Particularly, a public course course like Tory Pines, where you're putting, gosh, I don't even want to say how many rounds they probably do there, but it's in the tens of thousands,
0: 50,000, 60,000. Probably one of the busiest public facilities in the United States. Yeah, helped along by having the U.S. Open a couple of times, no doubt. (laughs) Makes it desirable. What's the bigger issue, Pat? Golfers, in terms of education, is it golfers? Is it actually those of us who play? Or is it non-golfers? Where's our, where should our, if we had a limited education pie to, to split up, where should the bulk of it go? I feel like one of golf's biggest problems is golfers and golfers' own lack of education. And the things that we demand as an amorphous mass, as you just said, from a business point of view, present a golf course that looks, to my eye, unpleasant, you know, really verdant greens and flashing white sand in bunkers, it seems to sell. And that encourages practices that aren't necessarily ideal, and that cause that next problem with people outside of golf who look at it and say, oh God, you watch the desert swing every year of the PGA Tour, and it's just – you don't want to admit you're a golfer sometimes. <laughs> it's just, it's, that doesn't again, belong there. But again – that's that's cool, but
2: also we showed Pinehurst damn near dead a few years back yeah. at the U.S. Open. So Tough. so and Chambers Bay, and, and say what you will about Aaron Hills and Chambers Bay, and where the U.S. USGA went with those, and why Mike Davis did that, mm-hmm. but they did, mm-hmm. and they shine that light. I I I really do think that we do need to educate golfers. If you hear this from superintendents every day. Yeah, here is what I hear from superintendents. If you are on Twitter, you know it people don't understand what we do. Mm-hmm. We tell them a hundred times, don't drive your cart here. They drive their cart there. Uh, the uh, don't park your cart uh, on the grass. They park the cart on the grass. All of these things that make them crazy. Rake your bunkers, fix your ball marks, repair your divots, right? And, and I think what we've learned is you just can't say it enough. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that, that it's important to understand like is, is percentages because in the United States, there's 25 million golfers, 25 million it's a relatively small percentage of the overall adult mm-hmm. population 15 18 yeah. percent something like that but but of those 25 million only about three or four or five million play more than once a year yeah they're they're they're, they're novices so you have to tell them and, and i think i think there's such an important role for marshals and people greeting people at golf courses and say by the way did you know you might want to consider playing from one of our forward tees today here's how you fix a ball mark you don't pull it up you push it in and do you have any questions about how to repair divots or what that little bucket of sand in your cart is for so I, i think clubs and facilities really are the ones that are better positioned than associations or magazines or or us to educate people about about proper etiquette and practices and really what goes on in the golf course
0: you know as well as I do, like some of the worst offenders of everything Pat's just mentioned in golf are blokes you
1: play with who've been playing for 20, 30, 40 years. Absolutely. Yeah. They think it's beneath them to, you know, do some of those things that every golfer sh- should be responsible for. Um, right. a, a interesting thing there, Pat. You, A lot of those things are um, the sorts of things golfers need to be mindful of when they're at the golf course. Um, there's a certain expectation setting that we need to do as well before people even get to golf uh, about what they're going to see when they arrive at a golf course. And mm-hmm. I, I think most of the golf that people consume on TV sets an expectation that you're going to see, like Rod said, Augusta National or, yeah. you, you know, you're going to see uh, hyper green playing surfaces, um, incredibly uniform uh Coverage of turf, extremely white sand, or all, all these yep. things, and then when people arrive at a golf course and there's the odd patch here and there, they go, "Oh, this is this is terrible," or you know, a, a, an extremely high traffic uh, path or something has a few. We dirt are patches.
2: we are our own worst enemies when it comes yeah. to this.
1: Mm. Yeah, we are. Right. And, and so, how can we go about sort of resetting that expectation? We know we can't change what the PGA Tour puts on TV. That's that's completely right. beyond our control. I do think, and I, I, the reason I pipe up about this when uh, the USGA's main events come around is that the USGA could be setting a better example. And uh, you, you pointed out, you know, Pinehurst and yeah. and Chambers Bay and Erin Hills actually set us on a path where they were setting a different example, but then they just seem to have regressed straight back to uh, you know nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties type of presentation the of golfers golf. complained,
0: Logue. Golfers are golf's worst enemy. <laughs> I, I think
1: it's it's a bitter pill, but it's like if, it's like when a an artist releases a new album. It can be a little bit difficult to hear it for the first, you know, five times. But you have got to hear it, and then something clicks with it, and then you like it, and then it's what you love. You, you've got to you've got to take your medicine for a little while before you start to enjoy it. And uh, you know, but,
2: but I, yeah. I would say that we are. I think we're doing a little bit slowly getting away from the lush green Augusta national syndrome look uh, more towards something that, that's more real and, and more minimalist. And I think we can set, we can thank uh, Ben Crenshaw and Bill Coor uh, very much for that. And, and some superintendents, by the way, who influenced them along the way, including a guy named Doug Peterson, who at, uh, when he was at Prairie Dunes country club in Kansas back in the day, kind of introduced Ben to this idea. <laughs> you could you could be minimalist. So I, I always look for superintendents to have hero roles and stories like that. But but I think we've gone that direction, I, and and we've begun to to see courses that that are are less than perfect get that attention. Um, I, I I can't argue with you though that we are too uh, we are too uh, focused on lushness sometimes, and, and that creates a perception of overwatering, whether it, whether it's true or not.
1: I've a- been looking for a turf grass expert to ask this because we have a lot of kikuyu in Sydney. <laughs> I'm an in English Sydney.
2: major.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll you'll put your
0: incorrect not, answer try. beautifully then, Pat. Yes, that's right.
1: Uh, we uh, the, like Sydney's golf conditions are actually very similar to uh, like California in a lot of ways. Um, right. You know, we've got very similar temperate climate and uh, similar grasses. Um, was a lot of them introduced, like Kaikuyu is not native to here. It's not native to California. Uh, you know, eucalypt trees and so forth. Um, and the the way most of our golf courses are made up is usually, you know, Kaikuyu and bent grass greens with a bit of power mixed in there, um, which mm-hmm. is very similar to the probably archetypal course when you describe that mix is a Riviera. Um, yeah. Something I noticed at Riviera is – They've browned off the Kaikuyu in the rough, and I think it looks great. Um, and I'm not sure how they've done it. Well, I I keep saying to Rod that I wonder if they've done <laughs> some sort of bad light application you? of Roundup <laughs> yes. or something like that. <laughs> no, <But> it, <laughs> most definitely not. <laughs> no, I, I, but it I looks great. It, it creates I this beautiful contrast, and they're yeah. obviously not watering in there, and uh, it, it the Kaikuyu is going to survive. It's, you know, it's very, it grows like a weed. Um yeah. And I wonder why more golf courses in the Torrey Pines didn't take the opportunity to maintain Kai Kuyu away from the playing surfaces in that manner that they do at Riviera.
2: I think they're really just getting their arms around it. It's been something that that's been like, you know, Poe Annua has always been the sort of uh, uh, thing you love to hate. <laughs> Redheaded stepchild. <laughs> and so Korea is, is right behind that. Now. And so, as we've sort of come to have this, uh, this love-hate relationship with Poe Annual, I think we're seeing it with Kukuyu now, too. And, and yeah, they are they can do some things. One suge- I, don't, I don't know what they're doing there, but they do a lot of stuff with growth regulators now in areas where they would like to really control how often that has to get mowed. And, and again, that comes back to labor costs. So some in some cases, it's trying to manage the labor costs and, and still have that that cool experience of having that nasty kukuya down there underneath you without having to spend a lot of money and water to do it.
0: Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking about something. I'll put this to both of you, and I'll start with you, Logue, and you can have a think about it, Pat. To too many of us, Logue, us being the amorphous mass that is golf, consider the game like a consumable. We are. What we're talking about here is the way we sell the game to golfers. And all of these habits of the not repairing the divots and the ball marks, I think there's two types of people in the world, golfers and non-golfers. And lots of non-golfers play golf, I reckon, and lots of golfers don't play golf. That's the truth of it. Because golf isn't just the act of hitting the ball with the stick. That's a part of it. But that's really only the consumable part, isn't it? This attitude towards the course of not fixing pitch marks, not repairing if it's not thinking about do we need maintained turf there, we made golf consumable in some ways, and even the industry that I'm a part of, the media, it's all about magnificent photographs. And you make, you take some beautiful photos of golf courses, Logan. They're almost never of dead grass or waste areas or those sorts of things. How does that play into the way we sell golf to people and how they're then buying it?
1: Yeah, I think it's there's unavoidably areas of a golf course that are going to get worn out, like you know, driving a buggy over grass is. Uh, if people picture, I heard on a podcast recently, someone said, "Picture it like you're driving over a field of lettuce. Like the lettuce isn't going to survive long. It's, <laughs> but yeah, that's what we're doing to the grass." Um, I, I think that uh, having a mindset that certain areas of the course are going to be already broken, like there, there's no, there's no uh, perfection to be achieved in certain areas of the course, especially in high traffic areas, and so like a, a high traffic. Um, path around a tee or something, where the golf clubs laid down some, you know, crushed granite or something, is a great way to have the ground already be broken. Like there's no, it's not, it's not something that you're trying to repair every time. It's just it's pre-broken ground. So uh, I think having that mindset that areas of the golf course are going to be pre-broken and not formalizing those too much. Like mm, you know, concrete where I get upset film. with paths <laughs> is where they <laughs> start to be formalized in concrete and and uh, gutters and gutters all sorts of things. Um, And I understand certain golf courses have almost all of their um, traffic is via um, carts and paths. And so that ground gets so worn out and you really need to direct the players where to go. Um, and I, that's an unfortunate culture of golf, I think, and it's
2: unavoidable. And oftentimes it's a function of design. And yep. that maybe there were some bad choices made along the way. You know, Jack Nicklaus hates, famously hates cart paths, and I don't blame him. <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're nothing but trouble. And uh, so, I, I, honestly, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you that you should let the customers kind of pave their way in some cases because you, you're, you're going to really be loath to control them. Um, I Now that I don't sell advertising to Yamaha and Club Car and Easy <laughs> Go anymore, I can say this with great conviction. I hate golf course. Hey, I hate them. I hate buggies. They they are they are anathema to good turf. They are anathema to the idea that that golf is supposed to be exercise. Um, sure, you can sell me one of the little robot buggies that follows me around, but just give me a strap or or a, or a trolley, and, and I really will enjoy golf. But but. You know, buggies are uh, a necessary evil to the, to the outings and, 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 and to the revenue in some cases of, of golf clubs. But I, I really, really question, really question the, the, the estimates I see sometimes about how much uh, revenue golf, car, uh, golf clubs get from carts versus the cost of operating them. Mm. So the, the, this whole idea that it's, a, that it's a big revenue, a big profitability center for golf courses, I think is bull.
1: Oh, taking well, into account all of the costs. I think Brian Schneider um, started a Twitter thread on this recently, which we should try and find for the show notes, right? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, we uh, we sh- he, should, shouldn't we?
1: Well, he <laughs> asked that question where he said, uh, that, okay, all you experts, tell me what is the true cost of having carts at your golf course, and I want to hear it yeah. about, you know, what it costs well, to maintain the parts. Ah. Yeah, what, what does it cost to maintain the paths? What does it cost to, you know, recharge the yeah. carts? What does it- cost to maintain the carts what does it cost to look after the turf what's the extra chemicals that are involved in uh you know uh, looking after the turf in areas that get worn out and so and just on and on and on and uh there was a number of responses a number of very passionate responses on both sides he just sort of let it, lit the fuse and uh and, and away. let it play out beautiful um, <laughs> But his that- his main argument, he had a customer who was looking at having a walking-only course, mm-hmm. and he wanted to help them make the business case that a walking-only course yeah. was going to be a better economic decision. Yeah. As a gimmick, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Doesn't this plug directly into that question that I did ask that you never answered, like, golf as a consumable, Pat? If we think about golf's start as a recreation, it was never about that. Augusta might be the prime example of what a golf club uh, was supposed to be as a notion. It was a place where we go to play golf and there's a 1,000 of us and we're members. And at the end of the year, we add up all the bills and the cost to run the joint was $100,000. So everybody owes $100. And if it was 200000 everyone owes 200 That's changed. Don't get a bill. You're not a member anymore. No, kind of. And so that's changed, though, hasn't it? When you turn golf into a business – You introduce a lot of these problems. You need to market it a certain way. There are fringe industries. The cart industry is one of those. There's all sorts of them around um, golf course superintendents' jobs and maintaining turf and those sorts of things. Clubhouses, as wedding venues and entertainment places. All of these other things don't actually have anything to do with golf, do they? But they impact on what I think about golf as, which is that wonderful thing you can share with somebody else who shares the same passion of walking Talking about carts, what a way to experience a golf course. Bradley Klein, we can't say this enough. He was on the podcast and he said he likened uh, playing golf in a cart were, was to golf what porn is to sex.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like watching I'm other people do that. that. Yeah,
0: they're kind of adjacent, <laughs> but they're not really in any way, shape or form kind of linked. There's a big issue in all of it with the, the business and the industry around golf. It works on National Golf Day to go and lobby about that, but it makes – Presenting and selling the story of what golf really can be to people difficult, doesn't it?
2: Well, I, I mean that's that's the that's the 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 the, the post World War II challenge that the United States undertook, which was to you know jump onto the the, the suburbanization of America and build golf courses for profit and and, and to make them a, a for profit thing. Now, and to to the credit of the United States of America, though, we also built a lot of them as community assets. Right. Uh, the United States still has about fifteen hundred. Uh, municipally operated golf courses where a city believes strongly enough in golf that they're willing to to invest in it for their for their people, which I think is a great endorsement. Was there not a federal program its values? Yeah. Was, was, it, yeah, FDR? It, was
0: it FDR who had the the infrastructure yeah. program? And a big part of that was golf. Golf was a perfect infrastructure program for a lot of people. It was part of the
2: Parks and Recreation Department, yeah. you know, and, and then and then when the the you know uh, the, the suburbanization came along the same time as Arnold Palmer showed up and, and President Eisenhower played a lot of golf that, that really is where, what happened. So everybody wanted access to golf. So there's this explosion, not just in clubs, but in for-profit facilities. And, and, and then it became an amenity for real estate, which was great because we built 500 courses a year for about 10 years, <laughs> it seemed mm-hmm. like. Uh, but it was bad because we built too many. We built them in the wrong places. And to your point, a lot of them were lush, green, little mini Augusta Nationals that weren't maintainable. They required way too much hand labor because of, you know, extensive bunkering and edging and all that kind of stuff. So we were again, our own worst enemy. And I guess, you know, I I keep going back to the pandemic. The pandemic was this, you know, this kind of two ways, two way street in golf, but it helped us way more than it hurt us. And if anything, the pandemic kept alive a lot of these courses that just should have died you know, that, that are those ones that, that, that don't really do that much to contribute value to the golf market and all that stuff. And I know they're employee superintendents and that's great, but you know, some of these courses are on their third or fourth or fifth owner. They'll never be profitable. You know, the, the, so, so we have that problem. We, we have a couple of thousand courses in the U S out of that 15,000 that just ought to die. Um, but I think that's to the point to our our conversation about resources, they're not using any because they don't have any money.
1: Man. I think that's a, a U.S. problem the the excess of golf courses. Um, yeah. we, we always Ooh, feel it quite a lot when a golf course here uh, is under threat. Um, even even a pretty trashy course, um, which barely anybody would have any would say would stand up for in terms of architectural right. merit uh they often serve a community and there's because we just didn't have quite the same sort of
2: building what percentage of clubs there are are truly private clubs versus community assets
0: in some other it's, way tie. it's
1: interesting yeah that ownership model is something that we mm. It's very different here in Australia, and I think in most of the rest of the world, I think predominantly yeah.
0: semi-private is what we have here, isn't it? You'll have a yeah, a
1: lot of, lot of like semi-private, private and private. Uh, yeah. very rarely, or you know, there's just not that many golf courses that are owned, um, hmm. apart from you know a few chains of uh, the Troon Golf type of places and sure, the resort or a here a Marriott, and there. a
2: Marriott resort or something exactly. like that. Exactly,
1: yeah. Most Most courses aren't sort of owned by by anybody, so't there's not a lot of changing of hands of things. but you know interestingly, well, the ones that are seemingly under constant threat are those ones in Australia as well that are owned and you know constantly changing hands, and there always yeah. seems to be question marks about those, so that that ownership models are interesting.
2: We, we, we saw a lot of change in the U.S. in the last 15 years in, in the golf supply in interesting ways, right? We did see post the recession in 2009, 2010, we did see uh, 300 or so, 200, 200 to 300 courses a year close, but we were still building some. We were still building these destination sand valley courses uh casinos were building them and, and a few very high-end resorts uh were still building them as well so so a net loss of about 200 courses a year so so we kept going down and, and, and trying to get it right but also what, what also changed was culture so the, a lot of the courses not a lot but a percentage of the courses that closed were historically jewish clubs that had always that had historically served that market and all of a sudden as things changed in good ways in some cases They could join any club they wanted. So just right here around me in Cleveland, Ohio, there are two historically Jewish Donald Ross golf courses that both closed. Um, One is now a, a, I call it the world's only Donald Ross designed dog park because that's what it is. It's it's essentially 120 acres or so of, of green space and park now. And the other one, unfortunately, is a Walmart.
0: Ooh. Oh, God. No, no going back. No, that really Walmart. Yeah, we don't have nope. Walmart here, but that's smart. So even on this side of the planet, there's a
2: you, – You can kind of see some and humps in the parking lot,
0: though. Oh, don't. Just don't. <laughs> Covered in asphalt or concrete. Look at the Logue's having a physical reaction at <laughs> the thought of it, which I don't, uh, I don't blame. Okay, so I'm going to ask you – I have a question for
2: you guys. So, so yeah, we, we tend – and, Rod, I agree with you. Sometimes the United States Golf Association makes really, really bad decisions about championship conditions. And I've had that conversation with lots of people. I've written about that myself in the past. Uh, I, I, I will never forget leaving Shinnecock and thinking, "Well, there's no way they can f this up now," and they sure did. So, so I, I, I was always rooting for. I was always rooting for them to win, but they still would make those bad decisions. So that's Go, uh, uh, Southern Hills, couldn't keep ball on the green, blah, blah, blah. But you guys do that every once in a while, too. You yes, guys tend to tar up your greens away. to the point where you can't keep a ball on the green. What's the fascination with green speed?
0: I think in – well, I, that started – my limited understanding, we, what we need here is Mike Clayton. I should send him an invite and get him straight in to explain it. What you're really talking about there is probably the Royal Melbourne of the 80s in particular. Yep. Under Cla- Claude But Crawford. even as
2: recently as –
0: Two thousand and two, Rich Beam came down here. I remember they cancelled the second round or third round of the Vic at Victoria. Remember this, Logue? Yeah, because they, you couldn't hold a ball on the green. And I'll yep. never forget the walking camera walking with Rich Beam, who'd won the PGA uh, the previous year. And he's saying, "Well, this is great. I've never been called off a golf course because the weather was too good, <laughs> just because it was a perfect day." Uh, yes, there was there was certainly a time in Australia where I think that that was revered, and I think golfers, generally speaking. Value fast greens far too highly. And that's a direct result of the professional game and some of that area that you're talking about. So we have been no doubt guilty of that in the past. I don't know that we, st- oh, it's been a while since we had a golf
1: course or golf tournament. Well, we're still presenting sandbelt courses for championships with. Green steam. Is, is there you know, a lot of, a lot of like.
2: focus on the setup and the conditions within the media and the discussions, or not as much as you would see in a, a, a master's? we got a much smaller
0: oh. media than you would have here, but we haven't played a lot of golf, to be honest with you, on most of the great golf courses of Australia in recent years. The hmm. Australian Open's been in Sydney for the last 10 more, 14 years. I think it's been in Sydney for so we have a, I think I go back to I think the President's Cup in 2019. If we stopped all of golf and said, this is the model going forward, Royal Melbourne, as it was presented for the 2019 President's Cup, was as close to perfect as you will get. It was aesthetically pleasing. It played magnificently. The ball still goes too far, but that's a whole separate discussion for those guys. But that golf course, I think, more reflects the way we tend to set up courses in Australia. We have so little tournament golf here in Australia these days, Pat, that it's kind of not a question you can ask. We have one tournament at a resort course on the Gold Coast in Queensland, the Australian PGA. It's going to Royal Queensland this year, but generally played on a resort golf course in Queensland. And we have the Australian Open, which has been in Sydney, rotating between three golf courses. Uh, right. for the last fourteen years. So it's you're right. In certainly in the eighties and uh into the nineties there was there were issues, various issues about and certainly Green Speed's influence. Claude Crockford at Royal Melbourne, I think, was the right. the man who really loved it but, but,
2: the at, but at the same time I th- I think I, I don't think Australian courses get enough credit for the influence they've had on architecture here. I think used to well, this the, this you know the edgeless, the the collarless Edges yep. on bunkers, but also the, the the little raking pattern that y'all use for bunkers there with Dumped the kind of the that became a thing yeah. for superintendents, and it flies in the face of hey, we need to save labor time. Yeah. It takes longer to do. It does. But, they, but, but golfers noticed it and they liked it. It was a detail that they liked. So you know, I, I do think you should get the big thumbs up for, for those things. I was at um, I was at Quail uh, Hollow where they're, they're having that big that big event coming up pretty soon. Uh, earlier this year, and he has mowed a number of his his uh, surrounds out in Aussie fashion, um, and that wasn't like that even a few years ago. So that that shows you the influence that that, that, that
0: no, neither uh, Adrian or I are on are on the invite list for Quail Hollow after a few podcasts. <laughs> oh, horrible things that we've about done. Quail Hollow. But look, and again,
1: it, it takes nothing away. There's, there's terms and conditions in this podcast, <laughs> by the way, Pat. Our criticisms of a place like Quail Hollow. Take nothing away from the efforts of the superintendents who <laughs> and, the produce, and the work, and yeah, the yeah. talent of the people who produce. So no, you it's, accept it's those true. as long as you accept yeah. those terms and conditions. Uh, yeah, I, it, it I, is I, always I like perplexing. Yeah, <laughs> it's perplexing to see bunkers in the rough and the entrances to bunkers be you know, collared with rough. It just it it, it seems to it's be, logic. It, <laughs> it does logic. I it looks as good, and no. and that's just not I think an Australian aesthetic. But it certainly doesn't play as well when. You know the area that can feed a ball into the bunker is uh, Do made you know smaller. The
2: quail Hollow exists.
1: Well, it's an
0: Augusta National sort of a copy membership idea. it's, you know? it, it, it's, exactly. it's a it's a billionaire's club. As it, it's,
2: it's another, it's yeah. another super rich person yeah. uh, who, who decide who could get into Augusta and decided to build their own place. Another got, example. Got of sick safe of slaughtering
1: guy. all the quail.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, just it like out, Augusta National, Nash-
1: there, there's a you know horrible history that they've hidden there of all the quail they were you know, <laughs> slaughtered there.
2: Well, it, it, but, but the other thing is, here's Charlotte, which is this... City that just blasted up in size. It just grew up. You know, Atlanta did that in the sixties and seventies and Charlotte did it here recently. So it, it's kind of got that sensibility to it of go big or go home. Uh-huh. So like anything else, I will just tell you that those golf courses reflect the culture around
0: them. Big golf. Yep golf. This brings us neatly back to something that I did want to talk about more broadly as well, Pat. This is right in your wheelhouse, and this is messaging. You mentioned National Golf Day. You go down to Washington and you lobby mm.
1: politicians about. So I still think it's made up. I don't, I don't think that's-
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just not a real thing. You don't reckon yeah. it's just a bunch of blokes who go to Vegas for the weekend to play <laughs> golf, but tell their wives they're going lobbying. That's one. <laughs> Dolly, <form>. yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's one form of messaging, and you might wonder whether the value of that and where that fits in the scheme of things. Is that more important, less important, or just a different important to the one-on-one messaging, almost, that a podcast like this and many others and social media is doing with golf? It feels to me like the grassroots communication that's happening between golfers, and you see lots of arguments on Twitter and whatnot, but there is some good stuff in there. People do start to think about golf in a different way when presented with a different view, which is more important in that. And the level that I feel like we miss with golf and this is to introduce another big topic, is public golf, we don't go and talk to the owners of the suburban facilities that are at the coalface, the councils or the municipalities, as you would call them in, in the States, and ask them, you have this asset, what are you doing with it? What value do you see in it? Golf does nothing proactive, and so those courses become vulnerable very easily. The pandemic has changed that at the moment, but as you say, every boom has a bust. They come together. So messaging a, a and communication of, about that.
2: that and and you're, you're spot on. And, and there's a couple of things. I actually think that, like I live here in Cleveland and we have the Cleveland Metro Parks. And the Metro Parks own eight golf courses and they operate them very, very well. One of them is another Donald Ross course called Manikiki. Uh, there's some quality golf. And, and there's a lot of communities like Cleveland that have that where, where they're offering a good quality product and they do a little bit better job of communicating with their customers they have because they have some data on them they have repeat information and things like that so they're sending them hey next time you visit here's how you fix a ball mark right so there's a little bit of that going on but there's not nearly enough going going on at that mom and pop daily fee we call them uh uh level where where they're just pay it's just it's transactional it's a transactional business pay your money there's the first tee. That's it. Yeah. And so it's our own damn fault for, for not doing a better job of, of educating people. And yet, as you know, we spend a lot of time on Twitter criticizing how people take patterns, divot patterns on ranges. Don't give a shit. Don't divot, care. Divot pattern Twitter is <laughs> a whole thing. Isn't it? It? They're going to do what they're going to do. Let's worry about bigger stuff like them understanding that, that golf courses are these great independent businesses who contribute 2 million jobs a year to the United States economy.
0: So that's the big question, is How do we imbue people with the spirit of golf? Because a lot of this stuff we talk about really just misses the whole point of exactly what, where we kind of started. And you and I did an entire episode about your first visit to St. Andrews. We did an entire episode about your first visit to Barn Boogle Dunes. None of that's got anything to do with whether you made four or three on the seventh hole. No. There's something much- well, well, have, Let me ask
2: you a question.
0: Yeah. Why, why do you do this now? When did you first
2: get this little bug?
0: When I went to the UK- in 1997, so I grew up in Sydney okay, so playing golf. Th- you
2: were a grown up at that point.
0: Yes, yes. Okay. Culturally. Yeah, indeed, already an adult and already been playing for six, seven, eight years at the time. But but,
2: but so I, I guess the the, the long version of, to answer your question is the the answer is we don't really spend a lot of time trying to educate grown ups. We spend time trying to educate kids. Kids. And, and and there's a there's an unbelievable program that that is grassroots very much grassroots in the united states called the first green so everybody's heard of the first tee and yeah. first T's all over the place now and that's meant to teach kids basic golf skills but also the values and ethics and and citizenship stuff that's just great i mean first tee is the best thing the pga tour has ever done period right and um, they, they're they
0: they Got one right. I was going to say because the, of, the bar wasn't set too high, but they did jump over it easily well, with the but, first.
2: But they also yeah. they also hired Joe Lewis Barrow and a friend of mine named Steve Mona to run the whole thing, and then they did a fabulous job. But but he used it, to run the so National Golf, Golf Foundation. See, though, Steve
0: Mona. What's Steve that? Mona, did Steve Mona run the National Golf Foundation for a while? Steve Mona
2: ran the World Golf Foundation. World Golf Foundation. Uh, yeah he he was in charge of the he was in charge of the uh, uh, the Hall of Fame. The World Golf Foundation, uh, the, the PGA, the village, and all that kind of stuff over there, and some other stuff. So Sorry, I cut you of
0: off there. I shouldn't. Ball. I should go. So, no,
2: that's good. So, so, but, but bottom line is, is, is there, there was a program that sort of developed here that's really gotten a nice groundswell to it called the First Green. And it's bringing kids to a golf course to show them not the game, not how to swing a golf club. But the butterflies and the foxes living in the bunker and the types of trees and how they maintain that little short grass and the kids are just fascinated. They go up and they don't believe it's real. So to bring school groups and young kids out to golf courses as an environmental uh, tour and 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 to introduce golf that way to them, how about that? How about that as a way to change attitudes and, and to to show people that that you know behind those gates there's
0: something pretty cool. Well, the gates are a problem, aren't they? There's your first issue there, really? things being behind gates. But one of the things that I think you get this realisation when you go to the UK, golf is so different there culturally. Mm. Golf is never over there. It's almost always right in the middle of town. It's not an exclusionary practice. Not everybody plays golf, but very few people hate the game with a passion the way that we've engendered outside of the UK, I thought probably particularly in Scotland and Ireland. England is a bit different. They have some something that remark, far more resembles what we have here mostly in Australia and America, which is yeah. courses that are closed off. These issues are going to come back. They're really going to come back to bite us on the bum, I think. And I don't know how we change it, because within golf, I don't see enough people who feel that way. Mike Clayton, who I have mentioned before, he's often campaigned to take the fences down at Metro, where he's a member. At some point, they're going to kick him out of the club if he keeps saying it publicly, because it's not a message they want to hear. Right? Yeah, it, it,
2: I, I I think that. And I'm trying to trying to think of the best way to put this, the, the 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 historic British way of treating golf courses as parkland is brilliant, and it's always been great, right? So so, and I also think that there's a fundamental difference in how they view golf versus Americans. Uh, the Brits view it as, as Mark Twain said, a good walk spoiled, right? Americans view it as competition. It's about to score. We were creating a, 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 a and this is a big thing for superintendents. It is, what, what's our role here? We're creating a playing surface for a game. Are we creating a, a green space for community? We're doing all these things at once, right? But but fundamentally, it's playing surface for game in the US. So it's a different viewpoint. And, and I think that led us astray a little bit, but probably you know that that competitiveness, the oh, our, we, our greens are going to be as fast as Oakmont, led us astray in some cases because you can't do that. And I wrote a column years ago called "Don't Try This at Home." That was basically, you know, this stuff that you see on TV, you don't can't want do. It. It's not real. It's Disneyland. Yeah. You know, you if, if you to- go to if you go to Disneyland, there's miles and miles and miles of, of tunnels under Disneyland you never see the tunnels, right? So I always tell people in Augusta,
0: you never see the tunnels. Yeah, that's right. And they might have as many tunnels as Disneyland.
1: I think Brendan James, uh, the editor of Golf Australia magazine, who's been on this podcast, said it as well as I've heard it said anywhere about that difference between US and UK golf. When somebody walks off the course in the UK, I'll start with the US. When somebody walks off a course in the US and you ask them, how was it? They go, Oh, it was great. It, it was in great nick. You know, it was beautifully presented. Um, you know, I love the place. When somebody I walks, shot
2: seventy eight, usually <laughs> or that.
1: that that's part of it too, yeah. Right. When somebody walks I played off, well, I love <laughs> when when somebody walks off a course uh in the UK, you ask them how was it? They go, It was great fun. Yeah. And, and that, that more than anything says the difference between the two golfers. Well Where
2: does Australia – I was curious about that. Where do you think Australia falls on that spectrum? Because Somewhere in between. <laughs> I've always felt like you, you, your your uh, superintendents and your, your head greenkeepers there valued the playing surface element of the game very much, probably more so than our, in general, British courses did.
0: There's, we've talked about this before, I think there's a misperception outside Australia that there's a Royal Melbourne and a Victoria Golf Club on every corner. That's not the truth. They're sure. very much in the minority. The bulk of our golf courses look very much like your golf courses in America. They're in the middle of suburbs, they're surrounded by too many trees, uh, the grass is greener than it probably needs to be, there's very little thought being given to the architecture in many cases, they serve a purpose, nothing like Royal Real moment. In terms of A lot of, lot of culture, doke
1: three and doke fours. Yeah,
0: a lot of doke threes and fours. Hmm. In terms of culture, though, I think Australia has a problem in that we are obsessed with competition golf. I have uh. mates who will not play golf if it is not in a competition. Do you remember up and go, you want to go for a hit? Yeah, where's there a on? I don't know. I, I think that's the read? majority of no. Australian
1: golfers. I do Australia's too. Australia's way out on the end of the bell curve with that, and more so yep. than Americans, I think, because you play a lot of. Uh, you know, just match play for a side bet, right, in America.
2: There's a, there's a ton of outings here. You know, there's a ton yeah. of, of, of corporate outings, vanity outings, community outings, uh, uh, memorial outings, you name it. That's a big part of the game. So uh, like I said earlier, a lot of people only play a couple of times a,
1: a year in, Corp- a, in a corporate day type of thing. things. Yeah, cuts yep. with beer Yeah, Australia golf. That is a consumable, it's, it's-
0: isn't it? That's not golf. That's that's a consumable that sort of looks like golf. <laughs> no, you're exactly. You're exactly
2: right. It's it's a day's entertainment. Yeah. That's that, uh, nothing more.
0: Yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah. Sorry, Logo, I cut you off.
1: Well, I, I think the to answer the the question about how we view how courses are presented, um, I I think in some ways we are in the somewhere in the middle of the spectrum between the UK and the US. But again, it's because and something we've talked about before on this podcast that. Um, geography is destiny, and we've got this mix of environments in Australia. Where it's we we do have parkland, but when you go back, if you were to look at that parkland two hundred years ago, it would have been quite dry and and uh, inhospitable and um, uh, very firm underfoot and rocky and uh, and clay based and. You know, there is some rainforest and things up north, of course. There's a great diversity of landscapes in Australia. But generally speaking, our golf courses are on these... Uh, what was formerly sort of rocky, dry um, hinterland. And uh, yeah. I think that leads to somewhere in the middle. Like, it, that that geography plays into how we present golf courses these days. And golf courses that have an excess of... Um, an excess of resources, and this gets back to um, a point you made at the very start, Pat, that gol- you can give golf courses these resources, but they need to be shown to using them responsibly. And I think that's where a lot of clubs that Rod was sort of alluding to aren't showing that they're using these resources responsibly in Australia. Um, there is an excess of watering of you know non-playing surfaces to try and achieve Uh, a pga tour or augusta national type of look um and you know that that's i think where we lose our way a little bit in australia but the vast majority of those doke threes and doke fours don't have the resources to be able to do that and in some ways the playing surfaces are are better for it um you know you've got a mix of grasses on the fairways uh, and then you go off the fairways and it's sort of hard panned it's back to you know that's what that ground would have looked like a couple of hundred years ago. And
0: Colin I mean, Chris Golf is what you've got there.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you
0: still have sand green golf courses there? Yeah. Yeah, you know sand
1: parts, yeah, yeah there are places where the grass isn't feasible. It's, <laughs> There's the about idea. 1,500 golf courses in Australia in total and probably a, about 500 of them, four or 500 would be wow. sand greens.
2: Yeah. yeah probably.
1: That's amazing.
2: But I, the, I think that's probably how many there might be left in the US. Yeah.
1: But, but they probably not
2: that many. Maybe they, they, they pour much.
0: sump oil on them anymore. They used to pour old sump oil out of cars on the greens <laughs> to keep them firm. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> okay, do they do that.
2: Anymore? Do you have time for one quick story from my 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 lobbying days? The, the, I was at the EPA headquarters in the, in uh, Washington D.C. I worked for the the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America at the time, and I was their their lobbyist. And we were there to talk about pesticides and, and about mm-hmm. how golf courses were doing better even then this was a long time ago this was about 1989 or 1990 and, and 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 they had some research there that had been based on surveys that had been done of golf courses on long island who historically use a lot of chemicals you know compared to a golf course in colorado or a golf course in kansas or texas or whatever else that's just their environment and the culture so they had taken data from those golf courses on long island and multiplied it by eighteen thousand, which was how many golf courses there were and and came up with this crazy number about how much chemical was being used and so i'm like no 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 i'm trying to calm these these epa eggheads down and and get them on track and 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 i said well you got to understand these golf courses are vastly different the, all over the country. you got this kind of course here. you got courses in the mountains that don't have any disease pressure. And you've even got sand green golf courses where they don't even have grass, but they pour old used <laughs> motor oil on the ground and they roll it out. And all of a sudden, the EPA didn't care about pesticides anymore. <laughs> they wanted to know about the used motor oil. We so I, I, I screwed up in reverse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic, and that of course is when your relationship with a golf course superintendent. No, I'm only kidding. Man. That's uh, that's not what happened. There's a lot of big issues facing the game. Pat, we've touched on a bunch of them here, and we we seem to be. If you if you were prone to a bleak outlook, we're under attack, for want of a better term, from a lot of different angles in golf, uh, and I'm not sure golf, as the amorphous mass we talk about, is ready for that, and is is ready to sensibly sort of defend itself. What's your overall outlook, though? Uh, are we moving forward? Is golf? doing better, not just at things like conserving water and using less pesticides. I think there is genuine headway being made there, and it's not the sexy stuff. We're not going to talk about it. We'll talk about Lee's swing, but we won't talk about that because it's not so, so sexy. And overall, are we doing well enough and how much better do we have to get?
2: Well, well economics are going to drive this. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. That's the thing I started at the beginning. The cost of water is going to be the biggest factor in the, the economic future of golf, but the cost of labor is, is there right now. So right now, that's the biggest issue is how can you maintain the golf courses at that level of detail we were talking about earlier, that 1980s Tom Fazio level of detail. Mm -hmm. We can't do that anymore because they had 50 guys on the crew and we have 26 or 12 or six. So so water, labor and then the cost of goods. Um, You know, we just saw big increases in. In some cases in chemical costs and, and other things because of petroleum costs going up. So, it, it, you know, we're seeing courses get pressured to do more with less. And that's not a new thing. Superintendents are amazing problem solvers. But it, but it also creates an opportunity to, to not be wall to wall green anymore. You know, so you hear a lot of people here talking about center line maintenance now you know, which is the old center line of the irrigation system. That's where you want the best quality playing surface. And as you go out from there, a la Piners number two, things get a little, a little gnarlier. <laughs> and, and so I, I think philosophically you're seeing that. So, so it's not that golf courses have to be urged or reminded or encouraged to do some of these things. That's what they can afford to do. So, so number one, economics are going are to drive the future. And number two, though, I really do feel like we're not as under attack here as we had been. Um, I I don't feel like we're a target the way we were in the past. And and part of that, I I honestly, honestly believe that superintendents and communities have done a good job of promoting golf as something that's not evil. (laughs) You know, so so I I do think that, that there's less when I I mean, when I was at the GCSAA, we were constantly under attack. We were attacked by major a broadcasting figure here named Paul Harvey, who was a big radio guy back in the day. We were being attacked uh, in the in the, the mainstream media about pesticide usage a lot. The Wall Street Journal came after. So anyway, I don't feel that right now. Thank you. I feel a lot of communities where communities are trying to push for fewer pesticides and fewer and, and less water, but I, I don't see any great tidal wave against us, but that gives us time to build that case and to tell that story and to tell it to, to anybody with. who will listen,
0: but yeah. mostly kids. Yeah, and work work with. The, the PGA professionals are probably underappreciated in most places, but by far the most underappreciated group in golf has to be the golf course superintendents, doesn't it? And I think social media has been a real revelation in that way, the number of incredibly articulate, intelligent, and passionate people in that industry is really quite surprising, even for those of us who've been in the industry a long time and kind of knew that golf course superintendents were much more than blokes who cut grass. I think it's been a revelation to all of us just it,
2: it gave It gave them a way to talk directly to the customer where they never had it in the past. And, and honestly, golf professionals and GMs weren't particularly good at telling the story about why our golf course is an environmental sanctuary. So the, the, it, it gave superintendents a megaphone to talk to, to golfers and they've used it brilliantly and, and, and you're right. I mean, it's they've, they've really established themselves as leaders in this area of advocacy and environmentalism and everything else when others didn't step up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mentioned national golf day, which is a real thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it happens. in Vegas. <laughs> it's, it's, the, 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 the allied associations in golf, all of these dip, the PGA of America, the club managers association, the national golf, all all these guys, it's superintendents who show up. They're the ones who show up in lobby because they're problem solvers worldwide. That's the global. That's the global center point of what superintendents and greenkeepers are globally is problem solving.
0: Last thing I want to ask you about is touches on everything that we've just talked about in so many ways. Before we press the record button, you mentioned that one of the issues in golf that you're particularly interested in is diversity and broadening yeah. diversity. So we've said the word here a million times today. That's exaggerating. I shouldn't do that. We've used a lot. Golfers. What does golf look like right now? What does golf actually need to look like? We're talking about talking to a bunch of people in the community who we have not historically invited in, aren't we? hmm what do we it, do about that?
2: It, it, well, there's there's some bunch of constituencies we ought to talk about. But, yeah, I'll, I, I, I told you I was going to name drop here. I actually played golf today with Mark Jordan, who's the president of the GCSAA uh, here through the uh, through next February. And he happens to be in an Ohioan. And I went down and shot a video with him and and, and talked with him at some length. And, and he just recently finished uh, uh, spearheading a meeting about diversity and inclusion uh, uh, not necessarily within golf, but within what we can control, which is the world of golf course management and and, and club operations and things like that. And, and so they're taking some, some very serious steps to try to make golf look more like the rest of America and the rest of the world. And, and, and so, and I really, that, that really does start by saying, we'd love you to come work for us and finding ways to, to have internships and employment opportunities for people of color uh, for, for women. Oh, my gosh. So that's the second thing is, is we're seeing this amazing effort. When We talked about uh, Troy Flanagan and his team at the U.S. Women's Open and Olympic Club. That was the greatest story ever. That was a great story. And, and I think that alone is going to help attract uh, capable, intelligent, committed people to this industry who previously might have been told, "Well, oh, you're a girl. I'm not sure you're cut out for this.
0: Is there any reason why women can't be golf course superintendents?
2: It, it, the usual crap, you know. It's just the cultural, usual, isn't it? Somewhere along the way, oh, it's kind of a boys' club. You wouldn't, you know. Somebody told them not to do it, and, and there are a couple hundred female golf course superintendents. Mm. I've talked to a lot of them, and they all have the same story: that somewhere somebody told them, "Don't do it." Yeah. Now nah, you won't. You can't make it. So as a result, we quite literally have only a couple hundred superintendents out of of fifteen thousand golf courses. It's Horrific. It's really a bad thing. Again, though, there's,
0: there there are some quite active women in that turf industry on Twitter. Twitter's the medium. I'm not a Facebook or Instagram guy, but on Twitter in in particular. And I think that's really important. That's what generational change is slow for a bunch of reasons, but that's what does, that's what real change happens. Is it in 20 years time? If most golf courses have at least one woman on the turf team. That's a change where we have, you know, if you suggested sending kids down coal mines now, it would be a <laughs> horrific idea. But for generations, that was defended as the way that we've done. That's what generational change is, isn't it? Wait, we, and st- we stopped doing that? Yeah, eventually, yeah. Um, don't laugh. We might start doing it again. Who knows? But in- no,
2: you're, you're 100% right. And women ha- have excelled when given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for a whole bunch of reasons. What, one of the interesting things is a lot of this came, and Mark Jordan and I were talking about this today, that, that, that Canada were, were leaders on this. Even though there's only 2,500 or so courses in Canada, they had a higher number of women in management positions on the turf team than, than really in the United States. And, and it was because of, uh, I, I think, a little more inclusive attitude that those clubs had, number one. And number two, There's some pretty strict laws about pesticide application in Canada and and a a much more difficult IPM test that you have to take to become a pesticide applicator in a Canadian golf course. Uh, And and women were were good at it. And and so we we saw, and I'm not trying to generalize, I'm just telling you that's what I heard was that these these young women tended to pass this test more. So they, they had opportunities that others didn't, and they discovered Twitter. And I thought, I just, I think with such joy about Leisha Schwab and Mo Robinson and all these people who, who really got out there and told their stories. And I was proud to have played a, a small part in that with, with golf course industry magazine by giving, by giving them the megaphone and giving them a chance to. So I do think we're going the right way. I don't know how we're going to change the, the, the color barrier. It's just, it's so hard it, 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 and for so long. We created such a level of discomfort for African-Americans and people of color. I, it, it's going to take a lot to get them back, but but at least we're trying.
0: Golf amplifies problems that exist more broadly in the community. And I think the gender issue in particular in golf, we see that. We discussed this in the last couple of weeks a couple of times. You know, guys who would never in the workplace ever utter some of the stuff that they just – casually drop when they're at the golf club there's something weird going on there but they're not golf specific problems they're just an amplification i feel in golf in the longer term though pat that's what makes golf part of communities isn't it when somebody you know who lives down the street works at the golf club the golf club stops being the exclusive place down there that you're not allowed to go to and becomes the workplace of your neighbor and it's normalized and that's that, what the, the, so. the, the labor shortage has has created another good thing, another good thing
2: coming, you know, silver lining from a cloud, uh, which is uh, courses are turning to high school students again to work on their crews. So these are, are, are kids that traditionally Maybe we're chimney you know, sweeps or working in the mines going or something. To <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, I don't know. Chimney sweeps, I love it. <laughs> Dr- drinking and doing drugs, I don't know. But, but, but no, that, so so that that wasn't a thing for a while. It just didn't seem like college or high school kids or college kids were interested in working at golf courses. But it seems to have changed because golf is a little teeny tiny bit cool again. Yeah, just
0: more acceptable.
2: Yeah, when we start to believe our own bullshit, then that's a problem. But, but we're kind of acceptable. But so, 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 a lot of these guys are, are, are able to hire high school kids again, which is, is very good because they're going to be engaged, and a certain percentage of them are going to get bit by the bug and say, Hey, I want to do this for the rest of my life. What they won't be doing is going to college for the most part. Um, I, it. That was Can something. It's unaffordable, it, isn't it? College? Yeah, it's just, it's just beyond reason. And, and, and to some extent, not as necessary as, as you would think for every management position, right? So what we've seen now is is this uh, you know 30 year bubble we had from the 80s on where oh everybody has to have a college degree and four- year degrees became the, the the almost mandatory thing to uh, to wait a minute we've got way too many people in this business stop these degrees to hey we need more degrees but they're too expensive so so yeah it, 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 the, the the change here has been we're no longer going to rely on universities to produce our own our candidates. We're going to do a lot of on-the-job training and bringing people up through the old-fashioned apprentice network.
0: I've got to tell you, like I'd, I'd be much better off in life. I'd, I'd own a whole lot more property and have a whole lot more money if I'd gone and become a plumber mm. when I left school instead of becoming a journo. Yeah. Be because as everybody made that shift, and you're right, education's. – I'm not speaking against education in any way, shape, or form – but what we created was a shortage in those trades, where guys who've got 25-, you know, 30 year thirty-year-old blokes who've got brand new Utes and businesses that are pulling in huge sums of money and they're employing people.
1: To be fair, they're probably uh, contributing more to society than than what you.
0: Let's working. be completely <laughs> honest. They probably. Let's take out the probably <laughs> and uh, and accept that that's the way it is. Uh, we won't go down the road of uh, the loss of caddies and what that might what impact that's had on the game more broadly, Pat. Because there's a whole episode in that. It's been fabulous to talk to you today about all sorts of stuff. I've really enjoyed it. Uh I, I accept that you accept you were wrong to criticize my poll, so that's <laughs> good. I'm glad we got I some resolution there. No, I'm glad yeah. that you did because it's led to this discussion, which has been fantastic, and it's been terrific. Really
2: it, anytime. Awesome. And, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I, I appreciate the, the, the context you put st- on stuff for me, too, because I, I didn't understand some of the cultural things about
0: Australian golf. So I, I appreciate the insights come down we'll let you in at some point in the next couple of years <laughs> well you know
2: 30, I, a couple of years away there. there there was a brief time when i was very involved with uh, the gcsa's business in the far east in singapore and all that stuff and that's a that's a story that nobody wants to hear but, but I never made it to Australia, so shame on me.
0: Mm. Oh, you've, you've missed it. You must come down at some point. I will. Um, yet, yet to meet an American golfer who hasn't come to Australia and gone away saying that was well worth the trip. It's a long way to come, but it's well worth
2: it. Oh, no. I I know it's there in New Zealand as well. I love yeah, to, right. to see kidnappers and, and uh, all of that stuff. So, yeah, it's it, – so many, so many golf courses, so little time.
0: So that's exactly right. I once said to Mike Clayton, I said, you know, he's, what did I say? He, he was tweeting about playing from – So this was a couple of years ago. He was at some other – he was at Royal Melbourne or Victoria. I said, mate, when's the last time you played a bad golf course? He said, no no time for bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not <laughs> enough time to play bad golf. So you, you just stick to the good stuff and uh, and good on him. But fabulous to chat, Pat. Thanks very much for your time, mate. Thanks, guys. Yeah.
1: Cheers. And like, always good to have you aboard, my friend. Uh, Thanks, are you going to get
0: a stand for that microphone at some point?
1: Uh, I will. Yeah, this is my, my arm's barely able to tolerate holding <laughs> this up the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I, feel, I feel like a wedding been, singer or something holding this microphone. It's been, up. it's been
0: three weeks, and it hasn't dawned on you that maybe you should get a stand for it.
1: <laughs> well, I, maybe if you send me that Amazon link like two or three more times, I might. I might Again, get yeah, them. that's exactly yeah. right.
0: Been good to have you aboard, mate, and I hope that your right arm recovers uh, eventually after holding the mic all day. Great to
1: have you aboard. I'll thanks be on. Right. Yeah. Thanks, thanks very much, Pat, as well.
0: Yeah, indeed. And that's episode 84, I think we said, in the books. So I hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking. And of course, we will be back again with episode 85, assuming this is 84, because I've lost my notes now. Uh, next week, here on the Good Good Gold podcast.